We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. I'm here. Tommy's here today. He's got to do something tomorrow, so he's with us today. Uh, several things to get to. Uh, we'll have a full week, I believe, of, pod- of podcasts this week. Maybe one day off, um, but more likely than not, five podcasts this week starting today. we got a lot to talk about, but we're going to start with this. Do you remember what movie you told me about last week that you were surprised I hadn't watched and you're like, you've got to see this movie? It's an old movie. It's about, I don't know, 10 to 12 years old. It's a Cone Brother movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn After Reading. I watched it Saturday night. I was what in, did you think? I was in my new place, and the whole setup for um, the TV thing isn't typically um, what I'm used to. And just one of the things that popped up was movies available to you right now. And one was burn after reading. And I'm like, this is the movie I think Tommy told me about. And it was late Saturday night. I was up late by myself and I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. I never can't believe it. I can't believe I have not seen that before. And I don't really think I remember hearing about it. Um, it was so good. I mean, Malkovich is brilliant in this movie. He's oh, so he's good in this unbelievable. movie. Unbelievable. I mean, from the opening, the opening scene where he's fired, you know, and he does this whole, this is a crucifixion. Crucifixion. A cruci- exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's brilliant right from the beginning. It's such a good movie, and I, um, you know, Malkovich, it's funny about him, Tommy, and all of the, the the movies he's been in, he always plays, like, I don't know, maybe not all of his movies, but he's best when he plays a very authoritative, brash, you know, um, you know, uh, almost an attacking kind of person, you know, even, in, oh, absolutely. you know, even in that movie, what was the movie that he was in with Clint Eastwood where he's trying to assassinate the president? I forget the name of that movie. In, right in now. the line of in fire, the line of fire, you know, he's so, he, he's so passive aggressive in that movie, um, you know, uh, with, with Clint Eastwood, but being John Malkovich was great. Burn After Reading was great. I'm just trying to think of all of his movies because I don't... Listen, he was he played a psycho inmate in the Nicolas Cage movie, Con Air. He did? Where the, you know, the inmates are, yeah, are I, I know the movie. on an airplane. 
Yeah. Well, John Malkovich was the psycho, supposedly leader. Oh, okay. Of of the convicts on that plane. He's God. He's been good in so many things, so many times over the years. Anyway, I really love the movie. I thought that Clooney was great. Brad, <laughs> the Brad Pitt getting shot in the closet was such a shocker. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, the way it ended. Um, with with Clooney thinking that Francis McDormand was working against him. It was just such a really, really good movie. And the final scene of that movie with J.K. Simons and the guy that was playing, um, you know, the, the, the lead in the CIA, and he's explaining everything yes. that's going on, and... And, you know, and he says, well, we hit a, there's one more thing. There was a bit of a snag and he goes, well, what was the snag? (laughs) And he said, well, um, you know, uh, Cox after he, um, you know, was hacking, um, that guy to death in the middle of, of the street in broad daylight. Um, (laughs) one of our men decided he might try to get out and help. And he did. And, well, he shot Cox, and um, okay, yeah. uh, is he dead? No, but we, we believe pretty much he's lost most brain function. <laughs> and he said, "Okay, well then we're good." Um, it, there, there's, it's really very funny, a really funny movie. It really is. It, it's great. I love the Coen Brothers. Miller's Crossing to me is one of my, uh, one of my top five movies I, I, of all I've nev- time. I, I've never, I've never seen it. Well, you got to watch I that. Know, I, I mean, know, that I is. That. I know that. that. That's just that the dialogue on that is like music. But but yeah, Burn After Reading, very funny. Highly recommend it. Brad Pitt, I think, is the best of all of them in it. He um, plays such a such an airhead. It's such a dumbass airhead. You know, health club trainer. Um, he was perfect for it. It's funny when I was watching it, I thought it was more recent, and then um, I realized when I saw Pitt, I'm like, no, 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 this is a much younger Brad Pitt. Um, Cone, my, yeah. the Cone Brothers. I, I've never seen Miller's Crossing. I know it's a big miss from from my list, but Fargo's the first Cone Brothers movie that I was like, oh my god, this is phenomenal. Which was followed up, of course, by The Big Lebowski, and what else have they done? Um, they, they did. did uh, they did. They did Cormac McCarthy's book. Um, they did uh, No Country for Old Men. They did that movie, yeah. which was so good and well done. True Grit. They did True Grit, right? I think they did True Grit. Yes, they did. They did. Yeah. I thought True Grit was good. I didn't think it was great, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, and then I can't remember the others. I know that I haven't seen all of them, though. Obviously. Well, they did Raising Arizona. Oh, okay. I saw Raising yeah. Arizona. That's a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Very funny. Yeah. Nicholas Cage, John Goodman. Right. Yeah. Anyway, for anybody that hasn't seen Burn After Reading, a 2000... Hold on here for a second. I'm going to guess 2010. 2008. Wow. It's 13 years old. A 2008 dark you know, comedy, Cone Brother comedy, with really an unbelievable all-star cast of Clooney, Malkovich, Brad Pitt, um, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton um, is in it. Uh, that was, it was great. J.K. Uh, J.K. Uh, Simons is in it. He, he's phenomenal. Yes. So and, uh, Here's another another Cone Brothers that, that I think is very funny with Clooney in it. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I didn't see it. Oh, yeah, that's, I've heard that's, that's an good. excellent one as well. Yeah. Now, they, they hit some clunkers for me, like Hail Caesar is, is 
I, I, I don't get it. I've watched it a couple of times. Didn't I don't think it's very funny. Didn't see it. Um, yeah. You know, um, the, the uh, what am I thinking of here? Um, the back-to-backs, right, of Fargo and Big Lebowski. Here's their, here, here's their filmography. Hold on. Coen Brothers filmography. Okay, Miller's Crossing. Raising Arizona was 1987. Fargo is 1996. Wow, it was that long ago. The Big Lebowski's 1998. How many times have we all seen that movie at this point? Oh, my God, yes. Um, I thought John Goodman should have won an Oscar for that movie. He played Walter Suchek. Yeah, uh, of course, but did Jeff Bridges win anything for that movie or not? No. Nobody won anything for that movie. <laughs> Bridges is so I good. thought John Goodman was by Goodman, far the best thing Goodman's in the movie. great, especially when he goes out yeah. and beats the shit out of that car. But um, No Country for Old Men was so well done, and that is uh, a Cormac McCarthy book, and I'm not like... Not, a, one, of my fa- not one of my favorites. Uh, I know I'm in a real small minority here, yeah. since that was the Oscar winner that year, but not one of my favorites. I thought there there will be blood should have won the Oscar. That there will there will be blood was great. Um, yeah. No country for old men was 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 good, and I was going to say that while never a, a massive reader of novels, Cormac McCarthy's the one you know author that I've read a lot of, and Blood Meridian's one of the best books ever written, and he wrote No Country for Old Men um, as well. Um, anyway, uh, all right. Well, I, I wanted to tell you that I watched that movie. Well, that's Not, good, and I'm glad, I, you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, and it was a good, it was a very, very good recommendation. Um, so I, I do have sort of several things Washington football team related that I thought we could get to right now. And then I do want to circle back to the Olympics um, and maybe a couple of other things I did not, you have not weighed in on the Kirk Cousins episode from last week. I did on the Friday podcast. Um, So we'll do that um, a little bit as well. But uh, I wanted to start with this because I know that I have um, mentioned many times that while I'm not a schedule guy, I do, you know, acknowledge that Washington's schedule this year has by my count, an unusual number of elite quarterbacks that they will be facing. And I've said many times on the podcast over the last couple of months after the schedule, not after the schedule came out, but after we knew who their opponents would be, that this has to be one of the most daunting schedules in terms of quarterbacks, elite quarterbacks, and by the way, just elite offenses a team has ever faced. Well, the athletic-ranked schedules based on the level of quarterbacks that teams would be facing in the upcoming season. So somebody sent this to me and I, and I read through it early this morning and I, I I was assuming that Washington would be number one. Well, they weren't, well, they weren't for one reason more than any other, which I'll get to in a moment, but the story is written by Mike Sando of the athletic and Sando, I guess last week or the week before came out with his rankings of quarterbacks, and he ranks them in four tiers. You know, tier one guys, tier two guys, tier three guys, tier right. four guys. And um, and he had help on that with like 50, 
um, general managers, coaches, coordinators, exec- executives from around the league. So it wasn't his opinion. It was based on a lot of surveying of NFL coaches and executives. So off of that list, he created the rankings 1 through 32 of the teams that would be facing the most difficult schedule based on the opposing quarterbacks. The toughest schedule in the upcoming season based on opposing quarterbacks will be faced by um, the Chicago Bears. The Bears were number one. They play Aaron Rodgers twice in their own division. They play Tom Brady, Russell Wilson. Those three are Tier 1 QBs. Matt Stafford, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray are Tier 2 guys. And then Derek Carr, Joe Burrow, Ben Roethlisberger, Kirk Cousins twice. Baker Mayfield. um, Who else did I? Did I say Joe Burrow? And uh, Jared Goff are all Tier 3 guys based on their rankings. So they were number one. Number two was Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, in addition to facing Lamar Jackson twice and Joe Burrow twice, faced Rodgers, Mahomes, Wilson, Allen, Herbert, Tannehill, and Carr and Cousins. Minnesota's got the third toughest schedule based on opposing quarterbacks they will face. They have to face Aaron Rodgers twice. They've got Wilson, Jackson, Matt Stafford, Herbert, Prescott, Murray, Burrow, Roethlisberger, uh, Mayfield. And then fourth on that list is Washington. However, Washington, it's written that Washington is the only team in the league to face their rankings of the four highest-rated quarterbacks um, in the NFL. The four highest-rated running backs in the NFL are, for them, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, and Russell Wilson. They're the only team... Quarterback, qu- quarterbacks, not running backs. Did I say running backs? There. Yeah, quarterbacks, yeah, quarterbacks. of course. Um, so Rodgers, Mahomes, Brady, and Wilson are the top four quarterbacks in Tier 1, according to the athletics rankings. And so Washington is the only team that faces all four Tier 1 quarterbacks. They also, so they face the, the number one ranked quarterback, the number two ranked quarterback in Mahomes, the number number one in Rodgers, number two in Mahomes, number three in Brady, number four in Wilson. They don't play the fifth ranked quarterback, which is Deshaun Watson. However, they play the sixth ranked quarterback, Josh Allen, the seventh ranked quarterback, Dak Prescott, twice. So in the top seven they have seven games against the top seven guys because they play Prescott twice. Now, the only reason that Washington is at number one is that they have four quarterbacks on their schedule ranked at the bottom of the league. Darnold, the Bridgewater-Lock combo in Denver, whomever you know emerges as, as the starter, two games against Jalen Hurts, and a game against Jameis Winston, which for my money, I think they've got ranked too low. I don't think he's one of the worst starting quarterbacks, but we don't know yet, and that's sort of their their point. Um, but in addition to Rodgers, Mahomes, Brady, Wilson, Allen, and two games against Prescott, they also have a game against Herbert, who um, in their rankings, hold on, um, so I gave you, they in, in their top 10 quarterbacks, 
they face Rodgers, number one, Mahomes is number two, Brady's three, Wilson's four. They don't face Deshaun Watson, if Watson even plays. They get Allen at six. They get Prescott, who's tied for seventh with Lamar Jackson um, and Matt Stafford. They get Prescott twice. Um, And then they get Herbert, who is ninth. So they get they and they get Matt Ryan, who's eleventh. It's it's only not the toughest of uh, of the year, if not one of the toughest of all time, because they have Darnold, um, Hurts twice, Winston, who they 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 deem to be a bottom tier quarterback, um, and the combination of Bridgewater lock. Man, now do you have the list in front of you? I do. The list of what quarterbacks? Oh okay. uh, no, uh, the athletic rankings. Yeah, you mean for the teams? I do. Yes. Okay. Where is the next NFC East team? Good. Qu- good list? question. Because I read, I read down the Washington when I read that, and then I stopped. I didn't read anymore. So I, I don't know where the next NFC East. Well, it team looks is. like the Eagles at nineteen. This is odd because they play all the same teams with the exception of two. Now, the two that Washington gets because they had the first place schedule um, are, and and the 17th game is they get Buffalo, uh, Tampa, and Green Bay. Actually, they play the NFC South. So they get get Wilson, Rodgers, and Allen. So that makes a big difference with their – with their division teams, because the Eagles are 19th, the Giants are 25th on the list, and the Cowboys are 28th. So the wow. Ca- yeah, so based on quarterbacks faced, much easier. I-, I would also point out, like if somebody did a ranking of like the best receivers in the game, if not receiving cores, the Skins have their hands full on that too. I mean, they get Keenan Allen in Week One. You know, whatever you think of Kenny Galladay, whatever, I'll strike him from the list. They get Stefan Diggs in week two. They get the Falcons in their assortment, minus Julio, in week three. They get the Saints with Michael Thomas in week four. They get the Chiefs in their whole group in week five or six, whatever it is. They get the Packers and Devontae Adams. The Broncos have weapons all over the field. The Buccaneers have weapons all over the field. The Seahawks have DK Metcalf. The Cowboys obviously have great receivers right now. They get them twice. It's really not just the quarterbacks. It's just the the potential of the pass offenses that they face this year are going to test this defense. This defense didn't get tested last year, which is why, no matter what you people want to say, it's why it was ranked so high in so, on so many levels. They... They just didn't get tested very often. They got tested by Lamar Jackson, and you know they got t- tested by you know a pretty good quarterback in Stafford and but Rafa and, and Russell Wilson, I guess. But they were playing second and third string uh, quarterbacks in a lot of these games last year. And and by the way, they now, could they could end up doing that again this year. That's why the schedule game's you know dangerous. Go ahead. What? Yes, it is. It's I'm curious because this speaks to something. I was thinking about today, and I'm sure a lot of fans deal with this, and I'm going to admit that I deal with it as well because I don't consume 
the whole NFL at this stage of the season. You know, I'm not reading how other teams feel about how they're doing in training camp. So I'm pretty much like centered on what's happened in Washington. And I understand how optimism can grow based on the idea that your world is only made up of your team at this point and what they're doing in training camp. And the stuff I read in training camp every day <laughs> makes me think, you know, maybe they will be good. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about, like, the battle for left guard that supposedly is taking place now, <laughs> possibly, or right guard, whichever. No, it's, it's, and, it's and I'm thinking, And I'm thinking, well, you know, good teams, you can measure good teams by their offensive line depth. And maybe they've got some offensive line depth. And I catch myself thinking, and what the danger is, every, in every, almost every city where there's an NFL team, they're doing the same thing. You know? Yeah, I mean, this is the danger of all this. I mean, you, you've hit on a couple of things. You've hit on, first of all, I don't pay attention to the, you know, the the minutiae and the detail coming out of these training camps. What I do try and, and really make an effort to do is to listen to Rivera when he speaks and the quarterback when he speaks, but really Rivera and maybe any other assistant coach, you know, as he spoke uh, after Friday night's thing, as he spoke after yesterday's practice as well, because I like to learn how, well, eventually, if you listen to all these, you're going to know what he is. You know, is he a guy that, that gives you clues? Is he a guy that's just, you know, super direct and honest? Or right. is he a guy, you know, that hides stuff? Because ultimately, you'll see the results, and then you, you know, track that back to what he says. Um, I'm not somebody, and it's been this way for years, even though I'm sort of required to do it. I, I think it's boring. I think the, these training camp things and these preseason games, you know, I, I'm much – I'll, I'll give you the topic that I discussed today on the show here in a moment, but you're, I, I don't even get into the, 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 the real granular detail of training camp. I know there's a market for it and I, you know, love to have people on like Ben and, you know, Sam Fortier was on the podcast Friday and, and Nikki and, 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 and JP and all the people that cover the team to, to talk about some of that stuff. And I can ask questions, but I find a lot of that stuff boring, but you're a hundred percent right. None of the people that actually do follow this for their favorite team are really paying attention to anything around the league unless there is an injury. And one of the things that has been a story is that Dak Prescott isn't completely healthy in Dallas. Yeah. He's got some right shoulder issues, which the Cowboys have actually reached out to like pitching, you know, doctors um, uh, for the Rangers, some of the, the, the Rangers team doctors, which tells you that there's some concern there. Now, that would be ma- massively impactful to the upcoming season. Yes, it would. So the, these are big things. You know, Wes Schweitzer or Eric Flowers at this point just isn't that big of a deal. Although I had Ben on and I was surprised that Schweitzer, you know, and this is proof that I'm not following it day to day, Schweitzer's been taking the first team reps, but apparently today Flowers got a lot of them. Well, I sort of assume they acquired Flowers to have him start. 
But when we get to the opener, we'll find out who the starters are. You know, we'll have a sense in watching some of the preseason games. And yes, I'm going to watch the preseason games. But Tommy, the last 10 years, that fourth preseason game, I barely watched any of it. Any of it. Well, there hasn't been a great fourth preseason game since Mike made Albert Hainsworth play the entire game. <laughs> in Arizona, game. yeah. Um, yes. That, that was the last great fourth preseason game. Yes, good point. Um, so I, you know, this time of year is easier, <clears throat> you know, when we do what we do than, you know, June and July, I guess, um, because we're, we're counting down now. And you can come up with topics to do that aren't necessarily, oh, my God, they just signed this dude to back up, you know, the backup to, the, to Chase Ruye. He might have a chance of making the practice squad. I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. And the NFL changes so dramatically year in and year out. We, it's week to week, really, for 27 of the 32 teams. Really, there are five to seven teams that either have the quarterbacks that mean they're going to be a contender as long as that quarterback is healthy, and we know who those teams are, or you're just such a bottom-feeding, gross franchise, which this one's been – you know, at times, certainly, or you're one of the 23 to 27 teams year in and year out that you're not going to know anything about them until they start playing games in several games. And Washington fits that category, no matter how much people are obsessing about Tamaric Hemingway or John Bates. I know, you know, that's logical. That's, that's logical. But if, if you're, if you're consuming and I think a lot of fans do. Training camp information every day. I can understand why there would be a sort of groundswell of optimism. Yes. But my point is, save for a handful of cities, in every other NFL city, fans probably feel the same way about their team because there's supposedly good things happening in their training camps as well. I bet they don't feel that way in Houston. <laughs> no, no, um, they don't. I know, said a handful yeah, of cities there, there that, that don't feel that way. You know what? You're, you're right. And, again, I think that the people that are really, really immersed in that, um, it's niche. But it's okay because they're into it. And, by the way, when we get to cut-down date, a lot of those people are going to know a lot more about roster spots 50 through 60, um, you know, based on what they've you yes, know, they will. been reading. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'll take, you know, uh, that first 35 to 40 when we get to, to opening day and start to evaluate then. Because that's, you know, it's – who was I? I guess I was having this conversation with a caller this morning, or it may have been Ben. It was with Ben. Um, uh, uh, Rivera said, I guess yesterday, that he's going to play these preseason games. And it's interesting because, you know, when they went to the 17th game and they came out with the actual schedule in May, it was later this year than the normal. One of the things that I noticed, and I talked about it um, on the show, was that not only were there 17 regular season games and now three preseason games, but... The schedule has it where there's a long layoff between the final preseason game and the season opener. 
typically your final preseason game would be on a, a Thursday night, you know, before Labor Day weekend, and then you would have your opener the following Sunday. Um, now Washington has 15 days between their final preseason game against Baltimore and their opener against the Chargers. And I, um, I bring this up because one of Rivera's comments yesterday was we're going to play our guys because one of the reasons we're going to play our guys, you know, in this preseason is we've got more than two weeks between the final preseason game and the opener. That's plenty of rest, recovery, injury recovery, et cetera time. You know, so, and by the way, you also don't want it being, if they didn't play in that third and final preseason game, Tommy, you wouldn't want three weeks to pass, actually like 22 days to pass between the opener and your last, and the last time you played. Because if if they played all of their starters for, say, three quarters against the Bengals, their second preseason game, it's on August 20th, and then treated the third preseason game like they've treat, treated the fourth preseason game in previous years, it would be 23 days before those guys played again. So I think you're going to see the preseason handled differently. I think you're going to see teams play their starters in all three games um, and maybe even longer than usual in all three games. Here's my one ask, and it's because I've seen the really good teams do it. Not every good team's done it, but if you look in recent years, teams like the Patriots when Brady was there, um, the Packers, the Seahawks with Wilson and Rodgers, a lot of these teams understand that without game planning in preseason games on either side, that there's really, you know, you're looking for effort, execution, you know, talent, but for getting something out of it from a team standpoint, what some of these teams have figured out is pass offense is rhythm, it's chemistry, it's reps, and we've seen in preseason games in in the past, you know, call it five to ten years, Tom Brady throw 18 passes and a half or 23 yeah. balls and a half on 25 plays. Like, why are you running the football in a preseason game against a team that hasn't game planned for you? Get your quarterback and receivers, especially when they're new, like they are in Washington, and give them as many reps with as much as the playbook of pitching and catching as you can get. Like, I'd like to see Fitzpatrick on Thursday night in the first quarter, if he gets two series in the game, let's just say he gets two, I'd like to see no less than 12 pass attempts. If they run 15 plays, I want 13 passes. I don't need to see Antonio Gibson or McKissick or Barbara carry the ball. Now, when we get to okay, the... So let yeah. me, okay, let me ask you this then. I mean, and Mike did this. Mike Shanahan would do this. Uh, there are coaches who have held back. Yes. In, in, in preseason games and not giving you a look at pretty much anything that they really had in mind or any of the talent that they really were ready to unfold. That doesn't happen anymore? You don't want that to happen anymore? Uh, nobody's ever disclosed anything from a game planning standpoint in terms of how they're intending to play. I know that. I yeah. know that. But, but I mean, you know, look. I mean, Archie, we didn't, we didn't really know, except for me, <laughs> uh, what we were going to see from Robert Griffin III. Oh, I remember. Well, I, Mike knew. 
Yeah. Mike do. I was the first one in that if you recall in that um in that mini camp to identify the pistol formation and bring it to everybody's yeah, yes, attention that they were going to do yes, some things were. but I predicted it would be red zone plays not the full game or not have it you know everywhere in the field. You know um Terry McLaurin Terry McLaurin was pretty much, you know, held back a little bit in the preseason yeah. his rookie year. And yeah, I was, he was and I was hearing things, I remember hearing that they loved McLaurin and I remember thinking, um, well, okay, why isn't he, you know, being targeted a lot in these preseason games? Well, they weren't, you know, they they weren't doing that. Um, I, I think really what it should be is it should be a lot of offensive, you know, pass, you know, throwing the football, getting into a rhythm, running the routes, getting the ball out, getting pitch and catch chemistry against another opponent. I don't think these teams get much from running the ball um, in, in, you know, offensively, defensively, you know, it's always been super vanilla. Everything's vanilla in these preseason games. Nobody game planned. They, yeah. Even even the, dr- no. the true dress rehearsal, they don't. Yeah, I know. I agree with all that. Now, getting back to my optimism train, that um, I'm, I'm like try starting to hop on a little bit. Do you have a sense, or am I off base, that they have more offensive line depth than they've had in the past? Yeah, I mean they acquired. Flowers, Leno, um, drafted Cosme. Who am I forgetting? You know, right there, those are three guys that all potentially could start, which if they were would mean some of last year's starters like Wes Schweitzer is a backup, like Cornelius Lucas could be a backup. Yes. You know, um, yeah. Yeah, I think on paper it would certainly appear as if they've got more depth everywhere. Wide receiver, certainly. Offensive line, but, yes. But, Secondary. But is, it, is, it, is it a leap? Is it a fallacy? Am I just blowing smoke? Because to think that good teams, one of the signs of good teams, is good offensive line depth. I mean, the Ravens do not have great skill position depth, except at running back. But they're always deep at, at, on the offensive line. Always. That's the team that comes to mind to me. It's, um, I, think, I think it's important to have offensive line depth. Is it crucial? It's not crucial if you've got an elite quarterback. Aaron Rodgers took his team to a Super Bowl. There you go. With you know You're a banged-up right. offensive line without much depth. We've seen it happen before, right. but we've also seen – Look, this team in 2017 was just wiped out on the offensive line. Remember, they were introducing each other on Saturday yeah. nights before games, you know, during that season. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great team, and they didn't, even with Kirk, they, you know, obviously they didn't have an elite quarterback. Um, had a good quarterback, not an elite quarterback. But, yeah, I think it's important. I think, you know, Tommy, the truth is, the position where it's most important is at quarterback. I know. How many teams' seasons have been derailed when they haven't had a quality backup? But it's hard to have a quality backup when you've got nine teams in the league that don't have a quality starter. So, well, they, they, Washington has three quality backups. Well, Kyle Allen's not getting any time right now. He's hurt. 
No, I know. So I know. I know. Right now, like it's Heineke, you know, behind Fitzpatrick. And yeah, you know, I, I did get, um, I had a conversation with somebody on the, before a round of golf on Friday last week, I think it was. And this dude was still trying to sell me on the fact that, you know, Heineke's got a chance in these preseason games if he plays well. And, you know, um, even though it, 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 he said, even though it looks like you're right based on the reps and based on what everybody's saying, that it's really not a competition, you're going to find out in the preseason games that it's a competition. Okay. I, I, I would honestly bet almost any amount or any loved one in my life on Ryan Fitzpatrick being his starting quarterback unless he gets hurt. Like, I just don't think that there's even a, a fraction of 1% chance that Taylor Heineke starts unless Ryan Fitzpatrick gets hurt. I think Fitzpatrick could go out in these preseason games and throw one touchdown and seven interceptions in six quarters and still be the starter against the Chargers. But for those of you that still think that your guy – who played well, really well in the playoff game is you know sh- not only should be the starter but still has a chance to be the starter. I think you're delusional. I just don't. This isn't a competition. This now, that, how many quarterbacks do they have in camp besides Sam and Steven Montez? Is there anybody else? No, that's it. I th- I think that's it. Okay. I I don't know. Okay. That, because, they, there might be a fifth one say, out there. I mean, if you're a Taylor Heineke fan. You have to admit, what's been his biggest problem? Staying healthy. Right. Well, so I mean, if, if Kyle Allen isn't healthy, mm-hmm. and once Taylor Heineke gets exposed on the field and winds up getting hurt, then they don't have a backup. Let, let me let me rephrase. Taylor Heineke's biggest problem so far since playing college football has been getting the opportunity to play professional football. That's been his biggest issue. I mean, he's 28 years old. I know. He's not 23. And he's played in a whopping eight games and started in two, one of which was a playoff game. Are you counting his XFL career? (laughs) No, I'm not. Okay. I'm not. Maybe I should. Um, There was something – there were a couple of other things, Washington football-related, which we'll get to. We'll get to uh, that – some Olympics, um, some Kirk. I want to hear what Tommy thinks. Uh, RG3. Um, there's a bunch of stuff to get to. We'll do that uh, starting right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
I wanted to um, start this segment by sort of segueing from your thoughts about, you know, fans and their optimism about training camp, but also being dialed into one team. Because Ron Rivera said something Friday night after that practice at FedEx Field, which just just so everybody understands, I don't, from what I can gather, I wasn't there. From what I can gather, I don't know that any I don't know anybody other than some media people that were there. But what I can gather from the media people that I've talked to, there weren't twenty thousand people there. You know, they 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 were giving away twenty thousand. They claimed it to be a sold out deal. I actually thought it was going to be an interesting um, measuring stick. First time, you know, back, you know, the, on your optimism thing. Um, would they, you know, would they get the, the tickets were free? Would they actually be able to, to give them all away and get 20,000 people? I, from what I can tell, there was probably somewhere around 10 to 12,000 based on multiple people I've talked to, but still that's not terrible. Um, that's about as much as they got for their last home game in 2019. Um, But I, I, I will just mention this right now, if I didn't mention this on Friday. I do think it was a really good idea to do what they did. I think that they – I think Jason Wright and the, the organization is in a mode that it's never been in. It's a mode they're not used to. It's a mode that Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder wanted quelled immediately um, when Brian LaFamina tried to go down this path. And obviously they're not getting any pushback from ownership now. And that is to admit you need customers and to do everything you can to attract customers. Why? Because they really do need them. Remember what Brian LaFamina told us when he said, you know, I think it's a pretty good idea if you're selling tickets and you have them available to let people know they're available, you know, which is what Bruce and Dan never wanted to do. They wanted to create this, you know, perception, um, this fantasy that, you know, there was a waiting list. But anyway, I think what they did Friday night is smart. I think you're going to see a lot of offers and a lot of marketing driven things to get people to the stadium. You know, there's only so much that they can control with respect to how many people watch the games, um, but they really want to get people to the stadium. But anyway, I, uh, I Ron Rivera had said something after Friday night's um, practice at FedEx Field, and I'm looking for the um, – God damn it. Where is the uh, – I had it up a second ago. I'll paraphrase here rather than looking for it. He basically – well, here's part of the quote. Part of the quote was, in in talking about the fans, he said, quote, I think they're curious. We've piqued their curiosity from last season, and we've got to get a hold of them, closed quote. That is a really good summation, Tommy, of where I think the majority of the fan base is. And the fact that he said we've got to get a hold of them, he knows you know, he's involved in this organization. He knows where season tickets stand right now. Doesn't mean that single tickets won't be purchased for the Chargers game or the, the Giants game early on. But cure, you know, cu- being curious, I think, is the majority of the fan base. Now, I put out a poll, and I gave three answers as to how you're feeling as a fan, sort of a fan sentiment, you know, poll. The three answers were, you're legitimately excited, the arrows pointed upwards, 
Number two is your curiosity is peaked, as Ron Rivera suggested. Or number three, you're still mostly checked out. You know, these are the people that have just said over the last, you know, two, three, four, five, ten years, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. It's not just the losing. It's the, you know, it's the way in which they behave. Um, So far in my poll... 46.8%, Forty-six point eight percent, the majority, which is the single biggest um, group of people uh, based on this poll, say they're legit excited with the arrow pointed upward. Forty-one point three percent curiosity peaked, still mostly checked out. Eleven point nine percent. Now I took calls on this for a couple segments, and I would say more people said curiosity peaked. That's that's where I am. I'm not. I'm not legit, a legit excited arrow pointed up. You're not going to get me again until I see it this time. And I want to see it for I, a while. I, I thought that was an honest, accurate assessment. Yeah, I did too. I mean, there is, there is reason to be curious. I'll be the first one to admit that. They won their division. It was a 7-9 record, but they won their division. And uh, there are some pieces... Uh, to get legitimately excited about, uh, so I, I I think that's an, I think that's that's all you can ask of the fan base at this point after all what they've been through. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can ask them to come on, jump right back in again. I think you got to show them something. Here's here's um here's the rest of his quote. I have it. He he was talking about the fans, you know, and them being back in the stadium on Friday night for the first time, even though there were a limited number of fans, obviously for what the last home game last year, I forget what it was now. And he said, I'm telling you, this place can be special. It really can with that fan base that this organization has had for years, being a team that started in 1932 with a lot of tradition and history with five world championships, three of them being Super Bowls under Coach Gibbs, we want to be able to get those folks back in the stands and get them behind us. I think they're curious. We've piqued their curiosity from last season, and we've got to get a hold of them. I think people are curious about who we can be. Um, we've got a lot of good football players. We're still learning and growing, etc. cetera. Um, I think this is a guy going back to when he got hired, Tommy. More so than Jay Gruden, who was just looking for a job. More so than Mike Shanahan, who had had a relationship with Snyder prior to being hired, but also got paid a shitload of money and wanted back in the game. This guy didn't have to come here. This guy probably had another choice. I don't know if it was the Giants or the Cowboys, um, but they're probably he'd be coaching, I think, somewhere right now if Washington didn't, didn't, didn't hire him. He loved the roster. Mike Silver told me that you know, going back a year and a half ago, um, which made him think that he could turn it around defensively um, faster than maybe he could in other places. But he's come in eyes wide open about everything. Now, there was that stretch early in the season – where, you know, he was providing pop quizzes for quarterbacks and games, and he was talking about going for two, you know, on the road with no fans, the whole thing, you know, not calling timeouts. There was a bunch of that, you know, as he was battling cancer, by the way, at the time. But this is another statement to me that just says, this is a guy, remember, he lived the RFK experience as an opponent in big games for the Bears. I think he just has a grasp of what it is, and I don't think he's fooling himself. Like, by the way, maybe other people are, 
in the media, fans, about how you know the, the, the people are going to come back, you know, immediately. Like they've they're they're just frothing to get back at it. I think he understands, and he says, you know, in that quote. We've got to get a hold of them. We've piqued their curiosity. Now we've got to get a hold of them. They're curious. So I'm telling you, Tommy, they got to play well this year. They've got the owners got to stay out of it. They've got to play hard. They've got to play smart. They've got to behave. They've got to win nine games, eight games, look better. And, you know, you, you need a year or two of those. You know, you need a couple of years of, of that put back to back. And then he's going to have a hold of a lot more of them than, they, than they've had in the last few years. You know, it is remarkable that uh, the coach of the football team is basically acknowledging that nobody comes to see them play. Yes. which I think, It is remarkable. I'm giving him credit for understanding that. That's yes, my I point. do. I, 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 I give him credit for what he said, and I think it's, it's accurate. But still, it, it's amazing, given the... The talk that we've heard heard here over the years that uh, a football coach for Washington football would say, "Yeah, nobody's showing up. We got we got to find a way to get them back in the stand." Yeah, you know, uh, people like the new team president, although he has nothing to do with the football operation. <laughs> he's made that very clear to me. Um, he's got nothing to do. He has. T- uh, he asked. He he uh, he's got to build a business, and I love this this description that is losing resilient. I love that. Um, that's his mantra, basically, to build a business that's losing resilient. You may say, "How do you do that?" Well, the Cowboys have done it. Um, believe it or not, the Dolphins have done it. The Dolphins have one of the better business situations in the league, even though they haven't won in a long time. There are a lot of reasons for that, and I could go into them on another show. That's stadium experience, it's fan friendliness of your stadium, it's it's investments in other things outside of football, which we've heard Jason Wright, you know, sort of allude to. But they've got two guys who I think are smart, and I also think Tommy are likable. And that if they can win side by side with being likable in their leadership positions, especially on the football side, they're, you know he's going to get a hold of the people that he knows and recognizes left. Remember, they never wanted to admit that before, even though they had an internal yes. poll, an internal yes. poll that told them how much the fan base hated the owner and hated the team president. But um, there was one other thing I wanted to get. I, Go ahead. And Let me just point out that, you're right about a lot of that, but the team president uh, isn't going to isn't going to uh, have the ear of the fans if he keeps putting out pablum like uh, Dan Snyder just lets his managers uh, run things without interfering with them like he did uh, a week ago. I mean that that was absolute horseshit. And he's going to lose credibility if he keeps saying that stuff. Well, he's going to lose credibility with people who are paying attention to him. You know, uh, you you picked that out of the John Kime story, and you were right to do it. Um, and again, I told you what I think he was trying to say, which is Dan's more the ideas guy, and Tanya's more of a day to day operator. But whatever. Um, for now, look, when the season starts, he's an insignificant figure. For fans, he means nothing. He's a team president. He's not Bruce Allen team president. He's a business only. 
He's made that very clear that he has nothing to do with the results on the football field. So he's not going to be making the calls for replays from his box? Nope. He's not going to be doing that, <laughs> even though he okay. probably he probably could do it better than Bruce. I wanted to I wanted to mention something that I think I missed last week. Um, it was the Forbes uh, list of NFL values um, yeah. for teams, um, and Washington had grown uh, had had gone up since last year. They had fallen to eighth overall. They had the the, the the slowest growth in valuation of any team um, in 2020. And I, di- I, I talked a lot about that back then because I said this is an example of how the name being lost and a lot of other things for them, obviously, the the loss of, you know, fans and, you know, people in the stadium. And I'm talking about pre-pandemic. It was during the pandemic, but before they started to lose the money from fans. Um, the value of all these franchises are up just significantly because of um, uh, because of uh, the new TV deals. There, it's new TV it, deal, yeah, yeah. It's it's up an average, an average of fourteen um, percent across the board. Washington was up to four point two billion in valuation, um, a twenty percent increase for them, which is really significant um you know and and so it's even above the average of the league well you know it's the tv deals and the fact that they had such slow growth a year ago so that was a big part of it as well is they had such slow growth a year ago that they they came up you know more than everybody else anyway what i wanted to get to is this um number one is for for those of you who said man snyder won big again well i mean they're referring to the buyout of the minority investors on a valuation of $2.2 billion and the team's worth $4.2 billion. Understand this. The team is valued at $4.2 billion right now. It's actually, if they were to sell it, it's actually worth even more. They would, they would get close to $5 billion if this thing were ever actually made available. Um, $4.2 billion is an estimation of their value, but you only realize that if you actually sell it, and it's such a rare thing that an NFL team is sold. The Cowboys' valuation is $6.5 billion. They're number one. The Patriots are $5 billion, too. Um, the Giants are three at $4.85 billion. The Rams are at $4.8 billion at four, and there's Washington at $4.2 billion. But the reason, and I, to- I tried to explain it at the time, that Fred Smith and Bob um, Rothman and Dwight Schar didn't get a $4.2 billion valuation on their 40% sale back to Snyder, which, by the way, Snyder had to borrow from the league, as Tommy pointed out, to make happen, um, is because it's a minority stake. And a minority stake never gets majority value. Now, the other part of this, to be honest with you, is I'm pretty sure Snyder's going to end up selling back, uh, you know, a 30 to 40 percent stake to another group of minority investors. And I believe they will be minorities. I think the NFL's quid pro quo with waiving the debt limit, probably taking it easy on him with respect to the 
uh, Beth Wilkinson investigation and then loaning him money um, to, to buy out his previous investors is to take on new investors that I think will be a push for a diverse you know, minority ownership group. I bet you that happens within the next year. But he, I, I bring all this up because the lead was these valuations – but underneath the lead was a very interesting thing that if you went through this Forbes uh, story, you found out how much revenue these teams generated in 2020. Now, remember, 2020, they didn't have gate receipts, so revenues were going to be down for the teams that didn't allow fans, like the Cowboys allowed fans. But listen to the difference in revenue between the Cowboys and the rest of the league. Remember, Jerry is Dan's hero. Right, Tommy? Dan's yes. hero. The Cowboys generated $800 million in top-line revenue in 2020. The next closest were the L.A. Rams with their new stadium at $422 million. Washington's revenue in 2020 was $388 million. Do you guys remember the days where it was Washington and Dallas neck and neck for the the, the two biggest revenue generating franchises in the NFL? And the you know what Snyder and and this is the new wave of owners. You know Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder, they're marketing geniuses. Well, you know Jerry's really good at this. He's really good. He's twice yeah. as good as anybody else, pretty much, in the league. Now, they allowed fans last year at a lot of their games, and a lot of stadiums didn't, but that's not where the difference is made up. $800 million, a lot of that, is corporate sponsorship revenue and other things like apparel, et cetera. And Washington's at 388. I mean, Snyder must look at the difference and go, oh, my God. And this is why oh, I'm sure he, he looks at the difference and says, this, this is what I've got working against me. I'd be doing what Jerry did if it wasn't for everybody, all the dummies who get in the way. No shit. It's exactly. I mean, that's what he would do. If he were, if he were ever were allowed an interview and somebody were to say, Dan, you and Jerry used to be neck and neck in top of the league revenues. Now Jerry's pulled away and you're sort of right there, you know, in that next tier, you know, two tiers down revenue. Why did, why did that happen? It would be, well, you know, we had a bad culture with Bruce Allen. We had some terrible coaches. We had this. It, Bruce would be the latest. I, I inherited a bad stadium. Yeah. You know, the whole thing. The whole thing. It'd be everybody else's fault right. but his. Um, but that is, just so you know, I guarantee you guys out there, this is something that burns him. He was right there. And of course, these revenues have, 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 have tailed off. We've seen that, you know, in, in a lot of the information that gets published. A lot of times it's hard to find this information because the league basically produces the, this information in aggregate. But Forbes has always done a really good j job of finding out, you know, sort of per team economics, you know, per team revenue and per team operating income. Jerry's team operating income, all right, pre-tax, is $280 million on $800 million in revenue. Um, that, is, that's, that is an excellent margin 
in the NFL. And Washington, in the meantime, made $25 million pre-tax on $388 million in top-line revenue. That's the thing that Dan looks at this guy, Jason Wright, and anybody else in that business side and says, we need to get these re- – we have to increase our revenue, and we have to do it even if the team on, on the field loses. Well, let's see if they can do that. I think for their situation, the team has to win. Has to win. Yes, I think so, too. What's interesting is – and this is no surprise. You mentioned how, how high the Patriots are, okay – I mean, and you mentioned the Cowboys. The Cowboys have always been up there, uh, and uh, the Rams were not up there when they were in St. Louis. Yeah, but the new, to LA, new, new, the new stadium. stadium. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, but the Patriots are an interesting thing because, uh, I mean, there, there was a time in our lifetime where the Patriots were a bottom feeder. Yes. They, they talked about moving them to Hartford. I know. It's true. And, and obviously the Belichick-Brady marriage and all that success elevated them to an elite franchise. You know, it's interesting. I'm drowning in newsletters. I read about eight newsletters a day. You do? And it's taken up too much of my time, right. yeah. And I get this one called The Huddle, and uh, this guy uh, wrote about, you know, will professional athletes eventually get equity? And mentioned Tom Brady. As, as an example, I mean, if you lay the success of uh, the New England Patriots at the feet of Tom Brady, at some point, do teams start offering athletes equity as part of their contract negotiation? Well, I mean, look, for a lot of you out there, you'll understand this, you know, um, compensation can be doled out in many ways, you know, depending on the company you're in. Um, you either want, you know, all in sort of cash compensation, you know, cash bonus, et cetera. Um, or if you're in, a, in the kind of company that you think is going to rise in value, you want equity, whether it's in the form of stock options or, you know, if you're an early, you know, person in the company, you want outright equity. There's no way that NFL owners are going to give out equity. Um, it's, it, it's now... I, when I say no way, I guess a player like Brady may earn it. I don't know how that would be factored with salary cap stuff. You know, that's I don't it, know either. You know, that, that, that would be, you know, okay, uh, we just gave Brady a half a percent in options, and so this year's options are worth based on the Forbes valuation at, you know, <laughs> $400 million. I don't know. You're like, I don't think you can do that. By the way, um, okay. uh, I mean – I would think it would be more a basketball thing, you know, where, you know, you don't have the same competitive level in attracting players. Like in the NFL, you have a chance, you know, based on salary cap and draft and, um, and by the way, you know, um, just a different feel of playing in bad markets. Like in the NBA, there are a few markets that attract all the players in the NFL, it's not necessarily that. You know, you can be in Indianapolis or Green Bay, you know, and, yes. or, or even and Jacksonville, still and still make money and still attract players without having yes. to, to, you know, incent them with equity. Um, uh, one of the things I was just doing is, because this was the first time, Washington's $388 million, all right? It says, according to Forbes, they had $25 million in operating income on that. 
I mean, that is just unacceptable for Dan to make that little money on that revenue. And there's just no, like the, the average sort of operating income numbers are in the 20 to 25% range. It would appear. Um, so that's gotta be a much bigger number. It's gotta be, you know, north of a hundred million in operating income. And that's all because of the product and the embarrassment and the erosion, you know, it, their revenue and their operating income are a total reflection of the erosion of the fan base because their TV cut is the same, you know, as 32 other teams. So it's all the other stuff where they, they, they've lost and they've lost big in recent years. And by the way, I think Ron Rivera is probably somebody on the football side that understands some of this stuff. That's my guess. I could be wrong. Jason Wright understands it. Anyway, um, I would hope the president of the team understands it. Right. Yeah, well, he definitely understands it. There was something else I was going to say about this, and now I've forgotten. So if I remember, uh, I will say it when we come back after these words from a few of our sponsors. Uh, the other thing that I was going to say is that there were a lot of teams based on you know net income um, that lost money last year during the pandemic, at least according to Forbes. I know a lot of people will you know eye roll that, um, but you have huge expenses. Remember in the NFL too. Um, but anyway, uh, I spent ten minutes on Friday, maybe fifteen. I don't remember how much time I spent on Friday. Talking about that day, Tommy, which followed Dwayne Haskins playing in the Hall of Fame game, RG3 getting a gig with ESPN, essentially marking the official end of his career, and then the absolute bizarro world of Kirk Cousins and his comments about, you know, contact tracing. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to weigh in on all of or any of the three. Well, I don't know how Haskins did on Friday night. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't really paying attention. Okay. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to mention somebody and something. I tweeted this from a story I wrote years ago in The Guardian uh, about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Originally, the Pro Football Hall of Fame was supposed to be in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Okay. That was part of the plan of having Jim Thorpe buried there. And uh, and then the commissioner of football, Burt Bell, d- died of a heart attack, and that plan got scuttled, and then it wound up in Canton. This is an aside. Uh, Robert Griffin III, he, he, you know, until we produce the 30 for 30, he doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Uh, good luck to him in his uh, gig as a college football commentator. He'll probably be good at it. Uh, and what was the third thing? Uh, Kirk. Oh, Kirk? I don't know what there is to discuss, Kevin. Is there another side to idiot? No. Is there? No. It's okay. It's honestly one of of all of the things, and there have been some dumb things. I mean, Montez Sweat, you know, after after coming out of the the meeting that the team held with the world, you know, top immunologist, you know, answering questions and explaining the vaccine, Montez Sweat came out and said, "Well, I'm not going to take it because I haven't gotten COVID yet. I'll take it when I get COVID." <laughs> <laughs> but you're like, were you sleeping during the meeting? Um, I don't think anything dumber has been said 
no. than what Kirk Cousins said about being able to avoid close contact. He's a, by the way, several of you, you know, um, pushed back on, you know, his body, his choice. That's my belief too. Trust me. I believe that. However, however, you know, in this business, if you, if you're going to choose this business and you're going to get paid all that money and these are the rules, well, it is selfish in my view to put your team at a potential competitive disadvantage. That's my position on that. But my emphasis on this was what he said on Friday during this bizarro 10-minute conference call or, or press you know, uh, uh, conference where he actually said that he might put plexiglass up and around him to keep him from having close contact. Now, maybe he wasn't yeah. being literal, but the point is he thinks he, as a football player, can avoid close contact. He can't. Yeah. His, his profession yeah. requires him to be constantly in close contact with people. I, I don't... It was He's got to put his hands under the ass of a teammate a lot of times every Sunday. Well, he might not get it that way, but how about in the huddle? Or how about when he's being tackled and there are five guys on top of him, you know, either with the ball or he just threw it? It's football, dummy. It's close it really contact. Is. It's, I mean, it's, you know, all I, could, all I could think of was that scene in, in Anchorman where Ron Burgundy is in the telephone booth crying about how his dog Baxter got <laughs> thrown off the bridge, and he yells, I'm in a glass case of emotion. <laughs> uh, I mean... He's, Ron, he's a Ron Burgundy in the NFL. You know, I don't think Kirk is dumb. You know, I, you know I've told people this before. I've had conversations with Kirk in the past. I know what Kirk is, I think... He's very religious. His father is a preacher. Kevin, he, this is this this is the Jesus thing. I, and he's I not going to change his mind. Tommy, I agree with you, but you know what? Say it then. Say it. Don't try to tell us that you're going to do everything in your power, including surrounding yourself in plexiglass to make sure that you're not in close contact and you're not risking you know, your availability to a team who, by the way, has no backup quarterback, none, and a team that has high expectations this year after you know, adding seven new players to its defense. So you, you can't, like, did, did he really think anybody was going to buy that? Just come out and say, here's the deal people my religious beliefs um because of my religious beliefs i'm not getting vaccinated this is a personal and private decision based on my religious beliefs and you know and and if there's some sort of health thing that he's specifically concerned about he's got some condition that somebody in his religion or some doctor said well you have this you probably should wait until you know, it's got two billion, you know, two billion more doses. Um, I just, you know, I I do understand, and I have three young p- 
people in my life, three young men in my life, and not all of them agree. They're all vaccinated, but not all of them agree that they're vaccinated for the same reasons. And not all of them agree on this subject. You know, some say, look, they're football players. They're not going to get sick. It's sort of what I said. To me, I think they should mandate vaccines. Lamar Lamar Jackson would disagree with you about that. How sick did he get? According to John Harbaugh, he had pretty severe symptoms. So, you know, beyond just the it's a long shot, though, we all understand it's a super long shot for vaccinated or unvaccinated, certainly for for unvaccinated uh, for vaccinated. But it's a super long shot even for unvaccinated young fit people to get sick. However, that's not the point. You made the point. It is about the greater cause of eradicating this virus keeping our health care system from being overburdened. And by the way, the more and more you read, and I understand this thing's a changing thing, but these long haulers, you know, who may have had very minimal symptoms when they had COVID, both young and old people, but now still don't have taste and smell back. My good friend Scott Van Pelt still doesn't have full taste and smell back. You know, this is now eight months after he had it. Who knows? He may never have taste and smell. There are worse things like having brain fogginess. That's a long-haul symptom. Migraine headaches. um, Other long-haul symptoms that aren't necessarily life-threatening but are life-impacting. So, I don't know. I just... Again, back to... Away from the, the vaccine itself and to Kirk's comments, they were really stupid... And I don't think he's that stupid, but I think he thought for whatever reason he could, you know, convince people that he would be responsible as a team leader to keep himself from getting shut down for another five days for close contact. Like he could stop that from happening. He can't. He can't stop that from happening. He will never be mask on, socially distanced, and even if he were that, there's no guarantee that he's not going to be close contacted or that he's not going to get COVID. He plays football. He's in close contact every single day. I don't get it. I think it's. I, I, I think some of these guys should just say, I'm not getting it. It's against my religious beliefs. I'm, I don't need to get into the detail. It's a private matter. I'm not getting it. It's the it's my position. I'd have greater respect for him if he did that because I do think that's what it is. So do I. I think it's what it is too. Um, what do we think of Kevin Durant after he became the all-time leading men's basketball Olympian? when they won gold the other day against France. By the way, it was a hideous game, and it was shown on live TV, um, which, was, which was nice because all the other games you had to pay for with the Peacock Premium. Um, Kevin Durant, all-time Olympian winner in men's basketball. Do you have any thoughts? I have no thoughts. I, do. I think he's one of the greatest players of his era. I have a lot of respect for Kevin Durant now. Kevin Durant's burner accounts on Twitter and a lot of the reaction to various things in Golden State, the, there was definitely, you know, a sensitive bitchiness about him, you know, that was off-putting to me. 
Um, but in the last year or two, to watch him come back from that injury, to watch him play this year for Brooklyn, to never in any of those games get worked up over him getting hacked around and pushed around, he was not a guy constantly complaining to officials. Not one excuse made at any point during the postseason this year. Obviously, his team was injured, and they probably would have won the title had they had at least one of those two guys, you know, Harden or, or Kyrie with him. Um, I thought he he was just sensational in, the, in these playoff games. He had two of the all-time great playoff games, you know, the Game 5 and the Game 7 in the Milwaukee series, where he scored 49 and 48, respectively. Um, I... I there's something about watching Durant in the postseason that just concluded and then understanding that a lot of players didn't go to Tokyo, Tommy. A lot of players that that legitimately were too tired or didn't want to go and backed out of going. Some of them were legitimately injured and couldn't go. Durant's always gone. Um, Durant had every reason after that Milwaukee series, which ended in late June, to say, I'm physically spent. I mean, that series was, uh, I mean, a physical grind for him more than anybody else. And he was over there, and he was carrying that team. And yet, in terms of a player, I've never debated he's one of the greatest players of all time. But I don't know. There's a lot of respect gained from me for him over the last couple of months, including the last two weeks. Okay. You got nothing. Any other Olympic thoughts? I've got a couple. You go. Uh, In the medal count, for people who pay attention to that thing, the United States finished with one more gold medal than China, 39 to 38. Uh, For people who care about that, you better enjoy it. Because it's the last one you're ever going to see. Why? Because next time around, for the 2024 games, the United States is not going to be number one. China has been building, I mean, you know, this Olympic machine all towards getting these gold medals. Uh, In 2000, China had 28 gold medals. The United States had 37. Uh, this year, the United States had 39, China had 38. In total medals, the difference in 2000 was 35 between the United States and China. It was 23 uh, for these Olympics. Uh, this is this, the needle's going one way. Okay. And I mean, it does I don't care one way or the other. But, you know, for some people, this is how they can score. Weren't there summer Olympics, many of them, when the U.S., you know, pre-1989, that the USSR had the, the yes. most well, the USSR moves? consisted of, of 20 I, countries. I understand then. that. I understand that. You know, I mean, you were competing with East Germany. Um, you were competing with, you know, Yugoslavia and, 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 and all this. So, uh, uh, I mean, China's coming in the Olympics, and... Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's they obviously, uh, given the way that country operates, uh, they have a system in place that's designed to breed kids right from an early age for this kind of goal. Interesting. So, Do you know <clears throat> the, what else? 
Go ahead. No, you go. Well, the other thing is, is just as a personal aside, if it were me and I was, had been covering these Olympics, I would have put in every single story I read, I wrote, somewhere in, in, the, in the fourth, fifth, or sixth paragraph, just to let you know, outside the Olympic bubble, there is a country that is suffering with its worst COVID outbreak of all time, that some of the leaders of this country actually cried that the prospect that the Olympics were coming to their country, and a majority of people didn't want anything to do with the games. To me, I mean, uh, it, I mean, basically, on, on August 6th, uh, Japan and Tokyo, they had a record number of coronavirus cases, you know, burdening the hospital system and a slow vaccine rollout that they had. To me, every single Olympic story would have had a reference to this. Because to not to mention it is to ignore the biggest story that is taking place in that city every day. Why do they have a slow vaccine rollout? I don't know. Is it availability or is it pushback from people? I don't know. Hmm. I doubt if it's pushback from people. I would doubt that it's availability. It's Japan. Well, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the reasons are. All I know is the most important story in, in Tokyo every day was the coronavirus. And you sitting there writing giddy stories about track and field <laughs> and not mentioning that, you know, meanwhile, in the rest of the world, this was happening. And I know you're, you're probably, you probably wrote virus stories, but I wanted it in every story. Otherwise, it was illegitimate reporting. Okay. Well, so... When you are there for the the you know two hundred meter final, you write about the you know the the race and whoever won it, and then but before you even get to that, you write what? No, no, no! I didn't say that. Fifth, fifth or sixth paragraph, somewhere high in that story, I, I I put I put in there. I tell you what, call my Surgeon General's warning for vi- coronavirus in Tokyo. I mean to to honestly report these events that were taking place and to ignore in all virtually most of those reports the biggest story going on in the city it's just it's it's dishonest reporting but that's me every story every column every column you would have written you would have included everyone okay every single one i don't i don't i mean it's i mean if you're writing for like the Washington Post and they've got three or four people over covering the Olympics and I don't know what they had, I have no idea. I don't even know who was over there. Was Barry over there? I think I did read a column. Yeah, he was there. Yeah. Um, was Liz over there? I I, I don't think I, so. I don't know. You're can't you just have one person on sort of the big picture no. of? No, everybody's got to no, read it. Because what if I don't read? What if I don't read that person's story? What if I read these this other story? You know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. You know, they're having this great time at the Olympics. Everyone's enjoying, you know, the the sprint and everything's wonderful. And I have no idea that, you know, the biggest story in the city is that the hospital system is 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 stretched to its capacity because of the coronavirus. Yet there there's a party going on. Um, I learned something about the Olympics that I didn't know uh, this weekend from somebody um, who I was uh, actually playing golf with. And I looked it up just to make sure that it wasn't, you know, 
Sometimes people will tell you something, Tommy, because they think, you know, oh, Lavera will be interested in this. He's a sports writer. And you're like, wow, that's really interesting. And then you say it, and it's actually not true. So I went and looked this one up. Did you know that South Korea, first of all, South Korea, South uh, military service for South Korean men is mandatory by the time um, you have to serve 18 months uh, by the time you're 28 years old. So you have until 28 to enlist to serve 18 months for all men in South Korea. But one of the exemptions provided is if you go to the Olympics and win a gold medal. And so there were two golfers in particular, Sung Im and Siwoo Kim, who are both big you know, players on the PGA Tour, successful players who have not yet turned 28, and their time's winding down. So while I really ripped the Olympic golf last week on the podcast, I'm pretty sure I did it um, on the podcast. Well, I would have, had, would have had to do it on the podcast because I was on the radio last week. When I said, to me, Olympic golf should be abolished as a sport, it's stupid. Like, the, these, these aren't Olympic athletes. None of these players care about winning Olympic gold. They'd rather win, you know, it, 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 you know they'd rather win the Arnold, Arnold Palmer at Bay Hill, you know, in, in March than win this tournament. Um, and... I was wrong because for Sung J.M. and Siwoo Kim, a gold medal would have meant they they can continue their golf career without having to halt it for 18 months. Yeah, if it gets you out of the Army. Yeah, so um, that was one thing that I wanted to mention. And then I wanted to finish with this. I watched several of the um, speeches last night. I didn't watch any of the Hall of Fame speeches on Saturday. I watched Drew Pearson. I watched Peyton Manning. I thought Peyton Manning was great. I thought Charles Woodson was really emotional. I loved his mother's introduction to him. Um, but I want to just go back to something that I hit on when Drew Pearson got into the Hall of Fame. And it's this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. And I've done this before. You know, as a lifelong Washington Redskin, Washington football team fan, to me, there's one egregious, majorly egregious omission right now from the Hall of Fame, and that's Joe Jacoby. Joe Jacoby yes. should be in the I Hall of Fame. I am with you, 100%. Period. End of discussion. It's criminal that he isn't. Um, I think the others that deserve consideration are Brian Mitchell, uh, Larry Brown, even though he had a very short career, he was an NFL MVP, and, and Jerry Smith, I've mentioned him before, um, yes, and yes. then Gary Clark. And every single year for a long period of time now when another receiver that has, you know, decent numbers but not Gary Clark numbers go, goes into the Hall of Fame, I say, well, Gary Clark should be in the Hall of Fame before this player. Drew Pearson went into the Hall of Fame. Drew Pearson's been, you know, screaming and yelling for this Hall of Fame thing for years. Something, yes, by the has. way, that Gary Clark does not do um, at all. Um and, you know, Drew Pearson, I mean, remember when he didn't get in two years ago or whatever, and he was crying and he was he's, he's talking about this is the, you know, the disgrace and whatever. Drew Pearson is not a Hall of Fame wide receiver. I'm sorry. And I, as a Washington football fan, I was at the end, you know, of a lot of Drew Pearson, 
you know, soul-crushing moments against my team. He was a very good receiver, a really good receiver in the 1970s. I'm not in early 80s. I'm not saying that he was, but he's not a Hall of Fame receiver, in my opinion. But if he is, which he now is, then Gary Clark has to be in the Hall of Fame. So does Cliff Branch, by the way. But Gary Clark played 167 games in his career, not counting USFL. Drew Pearson played 156. So they have a comparable number of games in their career. Now, the era in which Pearson played, at least the first portion of that career, in the early to mid-70s, it was tougher for receivers. It was a different passing era than you got in the mid-80s. I will, I understand that. But they were contemporaries for a period of time. You know, Pearson played until 83. Clark was in the USFL and got into the NFL in 84. You know, it's not like we're not comparing Drew Pearson to Andre Johnson, okay, um, or Julio Jones. Gary Clark had 699 career catches. Drew Pearson had 489. I mean, are you kidding me? Drew Pearson is number 172 on the all-time reception list. Gary Clark's got nearly 200 more catches. No, I'm sorry. He's got 210 more catches than Drew Pearson has. Gary Clark's reception yardage, 10,856 yards. Drew Pearson, 7,822 yards. Gary Clark, 65 career touchdowns. Drew Pearson, 50. Okay, slightly different eras. Still, these numbers aren't even close. Gary Gary Clark was a two-time Super Bowl winner. All right, Drew Pearson was on one Super Bowl winning team. Four Pro Bowls, three All-Pros. Pearson made three Pro Bowls and three All-Pro teams. Pearson was named to the NFL 1970s All-Decade team. You know, the Cowboys threw the ball a lot with Staubach in the shotgun more than a lot of teams in the 70s did. Um, Clark wasn't a member of the All-80s group, but that had a pretty, you know, dynamic group of receivers in the 1980s, led by, you may have heard of him, Jerry Rice. Uh, Gary Clark was, Drew Pearson was a clutch receiver, the Hail Mary, the bomb from Clint Longley in the famous Thanksgiving Day win against Washington. He had two clutch touchdown catches and a win over Atlanta in a playoff game. He was a clutch guy. He made big catches. Staubach loved him. Gary Clark came up big in his biggest games. There's no difference in the clutch factor. I'm just sorry. I get frustrated once a year with somebody in Gary Clark or somebody in Jake or somebody in B. Mitch. But this is so outrageously different in terms of the numbers. How can how can Drew Pearson, because he was on the 1970s All-Decade team, who cares? Let me point out one other name. I guess somebody should care. Football name. Yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, you're, you're, everything you said was right. Let me throw in other Washington football name that should be under consideration and in discussions, and that's Pat Fisher. Pat Fisher play, uh, made three Pro Bowls, was a two-time first-team first All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro. Uh, and I might want to point out, the guy who he used to make his life miserable, Harold Carmichael, Harold Carmichael yeah. he got in. I know. I know Pat Fisher should come under consideration as well. 56 career interceptions. 
Yeah. I, look, the numbers are impressive, and as you're ripping through them, I'm like, oh, okay. But, uh, you know, my my immediate reaction, he's not in the same conversation as Clark Mitchell, certainly not with Jake. Nobody is. Um, but with after Jake, Clark Mitchell or Larry Brown. He's not in that conversation. Oh, I, I think he is. I think he's in the same conversation as Larry Brown. Um. Anyway, uh, one of these one, look. One of these days, I guess Jake's got to get in at some point, if, even if it, if it's worth, uh, via the senior thing. But the Gary Clark, the Drew Pearson thing. Drew Pearson's been whining for several years. He was a great player, like he really was, and you know he was part of all those great Redskin Cowboy games of the '70s and the early '80s. And maybe because you know Clark was part of. Uh, uh, a three, the posse with Monk and Sanders that may, you know, Monk's in and Monk deserved to be in, but maybe, you know, he is sort of overlooked because it was part of a group. But Gary Clark was a great NFL wide receiver and he was a badass, tough, competitive dude who delivered in all of the clutch moments. And his numbers are embarrassing putting them side-by-side side with the guy that just got in, Drew Pearson. They dwarf Drew Pearson's numbers. So, you know, the numbers argument is, is, is a one-sided beatdown. And then the qualitative, the other part, which is, you know, Gary Clark was every bit the clutch performer that Drew Pearson was and every bit the winner that Drew Pearson was. Um, and Cliff Branch, I was looking through this in sort of thinking about this again. Every time I get into this, I, it's a, it's a you know deep rabbit hole you end up going down. The guy that really, if Drew Pearson is in, deserves to be in is Cliff Branch. You know, Cliff Branch is one of the greatest postseason receivers in NFL history, and his numbers also, you know, are better than Drew Pearson's in the regular season. Um, but anyway, uh, you got anything else? That's all I got, boss. All right. You're uh, not going to be here with me tomorrow. I don't know who will be here. And for those of you that have asked for Cooley, we're figuring it out. He's going to be back. I just don't know when. Um, He is having a good summer, and he's coaching. So um, we're going to have to work that out. Uh, But have a great day and evening. I'll be back tomorrow. Tommy will be back with me on Thursday.